Hey guys, DJ here. This is a disclaimer. Applied Materials is a 100% non-profit fan project set within the Orpheus Protocol game system. The Orpheus Protocol is an actual play podcast and tabletop role-playing game system created by Rob Stith and published by Varkalak Press. If you'd like to know more, please check out the podcast at www.orpheusprotocol.com and patreon.com slash orpheusprotocol if you'd like to show more support for the main show. A link to the main show will be provided in the episode description down below. Thank you for your time, and please enjoy the following episode. Welcome to Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. My name is DJ, and I will be your host for tonight. On the cast list for our journey into the unknown, Jenna as Annie Sullivan. Tonight's episode, Small Town Blues, Part 3. Small Town Blues contains violence, uncomfortable truths, and secrets hidden under a veneer of normalcy. Consider this your warning. Previously on Applied Materials, Annie continues her investigation into the poker card serial killings, conducting an interview with the latest victim's wife and bringing her police dog, Max, to the crime scenes to find more evidence. She builds a case of blackmail and bribery. But just as she reaches a dead end, a colleague of hers is kidnapped in broad daylight. It is midday, just past noon, as... You and Sergeant Daniel, you and Sergeant Samuel arrive in Ballard, Utah. You are hot on the heels of presumably the person who kidnapped Officer Michael Jensen, and Officer Jensen was apparently due to privately investigate something to do with this ranch just outside of Ballard. The approach to the ranch is a long, unpaved dirt road. It is not lined by trees. There are no lights. There is only a fence. As you make your approach, it is chilly outside. You have the heater on in your car. And it doesn't help that today happens to be a cloudless day. And so the sun is beating down on top of your car, as well as the fields of snow outside. Your cybernetic optics filter out all of the reflections and potential blindness that could come from sunlight reflecting off of snow. Sergeant Samuel, however, is not so lucky, and you can see him already wearing sunglasses in the car. As you get closer to the ranch, you can see that even though, the, even though this road has been cleared of snow, there's still quite a heavy buildup of it on both sides, and it makes the tire tracks that you are following all the clearer. You'd spotted this set of tire tracks coming in from the road just a few minutes ago as you, as you were en route to the actual property. And you you and Sergeant Samuel had realized that if no one's been out here for an extended period of time, there shouldn't be a set of fresh tire tracks leading towards the ranch, which lends further credence to your theory. And once you get up to the main gate, or as close as you can to it, to actually start seeing the property, you see that parked out front, maybe about 50 feet from your car, is an unmarked gray panel van. Samuel pats you on the shoulder and he says, All right, Annie, that's enough. Stop here. If you get any closer, people might hear the car. And she would pull off then. You pull the car off to the side of the road, kill the engine rather quickly, and you hop out of the car. Max is by your side. Quick aside question. Does Max have doggles? Yes, yes, Max is wearing doggles. Snow goggles with tinted lenses. They are strapped firmly on his head. Wonderful. He is safe now. So I would like you to make a stealth check with your dexterity as you make the approach to the ranch. Okay, okay, I think I got that. Okay, nice, nice, nice. All right, and then with my dexterity, so that's a plus five on its own. But I am going to go ahead and spend a physical strain to make that a six. All right. With a six, you duck down low. You essentially almost hug the ground with how low you bend. 
Max is by your side and doing the same sort of creeping crawl, matching your pace step for step as you move up the road towards the ranch. You can see that Samuel is keeping, pa uh, keeping pace with you on the other side of the road in an attempt to perhaps spread out so that they are less easily spotted. And as you move up the driveway towards the ranch, you can see that, and as you approach the ranch, you can see that the property itself appears to be quite sparse in terms of buildings. There appears to be a shed to your right, along with a bigger Wild West-style two-story house on your right. I'll say it again. And there also appears to be a Old West-style two-story house on your left. And just behind that house, you can see the rather large roof and stark, slightly desaturated red walls of a barn behind the house, along with the tall, oblong, gray spire of a grain silo just in front of where the barn would be. The gray panel van that you spotted on your approach is sitting in the driveway just outside the house. The trees in the area are leafless. They are not but branches. Snow crowns some of their tops. And there are places where you can see that excessive snow has built up and snow has fallen and piled up at the base of the tree. You can see past the trees and the house in the spaces left behind by the winter that sort of everything past the house and the barn appears to be farmland that has since been grown over by wild grass and desert that has also been snowed on. It's just an endless expanse of white. And I would now like you to make an awareness check with your perception, please, as you approach. Oh, my zero perception. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's a negative two. <laughs> There's no real point in spending strain. I'm going to need it elsewhere. I'm going to rely more on Max this time. All right. You are focused on the stealthy approach. So focused, in fact, that outside of your boots crunching through snow, you don't really hear all that much. But as you get within a stone's throw of the house, you feel Max perk up against you. He's been by your side this whole time. You've probably had a hand on the little strap on his harness, where his neck would be to keep him healed at your position. To keep him at heel next to you, and also to prevent him from running off in case he spots something or smells something. But you can feel him twitch a little bit as his head moves in the direction of a sound that he hears but you do not hear. And then you can feel him move forwards a little bit and then tug against your grip on his vest. Okay. I mean, if he's tugging, I'm going to follow. Okay. You loosen your grip on Max's harness and he starts leading you in a direction towards the house. Behind you, you can hear Sergeant Samuel stop at his tracks and then sort of stage whisper at you. Annie, where are you going? Okay, I will not look at him, but I will give the hand signal for moving forward. You don't hear him respond verbally, but a moment later you hear his footsteps behind you, crunching through the snow. As you continue to follow Max, he leads you not into the house, but past the house towards the barn. As you approach the barn, you find that its roof is mostly covered in snow. The paint on the walls of this barn, although bright red, have since faded with age. Some of it is peeling, but you can see that there was an attempt to repaint the walls of this barn, presumably in more modern times, and that has stuck. But of course, that paint job must have been done at least five years ago, and so some portions of this new paint job are also peeling to reveal the old paint underneath. When you get closer, you can hear the sound of something striking something meaty or fleshy, the barn door on the front appears to be open. Okay. Would it still be a perception check if I wanted to see if there were any, like, kind of 
blood stains or blood trails that lead into the barn? Or would that be an investigation? That'll be an investigation check with your cognition. Wonderful. I would like to make such a check. Do I have permission to do so? Yes, yes, you do. Fantastic. All right, so I'm sitting at a plus four. It's not just plus four. If I add in my uh, extra strain that I get from being high rank in investigation, I'm sitting at a plus seven, baby. At the sounds that you hear from the barn, you pause. Your left hand grips the strap on the back of Max's harness, and you lightly tug backwards once. He takes the order and stops. But you can feel the hackles on his back start to raise upon hearing more noise coming from inside the barn that you can't hear. You take a quick moment to inspect the outside of the barn from where you stand. In the snow, there appear to be footprints or what look like heavy boots stomping through the slightly thick layer of snow that blankets this whole area. It appears to lead from the gray panel van over towards the barn. There appears to only be one set of these footprints. Okay, I'm going to look back to Sergeant Langley. What's his expression? You look back at Sergeant Langley. He looks tense, pensive. His pistol is ready in his hands. And when he catches your eye, he gives you a little nod and then jerks his head towards the barn as if to say, go on, you first. Of course. All right. I would like to uh, preemptively just straighten out my right arm just in case. You holster your pistol and straighten out your right arm. Sergeant Langley sees this and slowly walks a big circle around your right so that he's not in front of you now, but he is somewhere off to your right behind this gray panel van. You can see his feet poking out from underneath the... uh, you can see his feet poking out from underneath the chassis of the van. And presumably, he is providing you cover to make your approach. Perfect. I know he's got my back. All right. Then I'm going to give Max the hold command. Like, I need him to wait. I'm not giving the attack command just yet, but soon. And then I'm going to peek into the doors of the barn. As As quietly as you can, you make your way towards the door of the barn. You give Max the hold command and he stays put as you let go of his harness and make your slow, quiet approach towards the open door of the barn. And as you stack up against the slightly open door, it's not fully open, but it's open enough that you can peer inside without being exposed. And I would like you to make a horror check, please. Oh, shit. I swear, if they're messing with Jensen, I will shoot. All right. Okay, got plus two on the dice. I'm going to use willpower this time. So I'm sitting at a five. So you pass, standing to lose three preventable sanity damage. Well, hey, look at that. I'm going to go ahead and use my fatalism acclamation to pay one humanity so I take no damage. What you see in front of you is a mostly empty barn. From what you remember of the research you did on this place, this this barn hasn't been used for actual farming work in years. And so it doesn't surprise you that there are no hay bales. There is no indication that this place was used to store grain or farming equipment. Instead, what you find are some empty equipment cases, tripods, floodlights, and other assorted filming equipment. But in the center of this barn, (coughs) I'll say it again. And in the center of this barn stands a black clad figure. Looks like they are wearing a hooded jacket underneath a thicker black windbreaker, black cargo pants with the ends of the legs tucked into a pair of black car- of black military boots. In one hand, they appear to be holding an aluminum baseball bat, the end of which is slickened with blood. 
you presume, that came from the crumpled figure of Michael Jensen on the floor of the barn, bound by the wrists and ankles with zip ties. We're going to start with the, with the lawful good option of using intimidation. It would be freeze, drop the weapon. Okay, roll that intimidation check with your charisma, please. I absolutely will. So I've got a plus four in total, but I'm going to go ahead and spend two spiritual strain to make that a six. So it's a smack on the side of the barn door to make a loud noise to get their attention and also to open the door up wider for a tactical advantage. Stop! Drop your weapon! You can see the figure ever so slightly start like they've been surprised. And as they turn towards you, you can see underneath the black hood that it is not any someone. It is a he, a man. Slightly scruffy looking. You can't tell the color of his eyes, but he looks like he has black or brown hair. You can't quite tell underneath the hood. Has a full beard speckled with strands of gray hair and little flakes of snow. You can see that the figure, this man, locks eyes on you. You can see that this man locks eyes with you. And I would like you to roll either a discipline with cognition or stability with willpower check. This is not horror. You're rolling a check. Pick, take your pick of which skill you want, you need, you want to use. Okay. I'm going to go discipline with cognition. All right, so I'm sitting at a plus five. And you know what? I'm going to stick with it. All right. So you fail. I would like you to roll a temporary insanity check at a minus one penalty. Okay. As you stare into this man's eyes and you suddenly see a startlingly quick flash of images. It is a montage in your mind of different scenes. You look to have been transplanted into flashes of memory, different images of the man in front of you in various states of, you presume, combat, holding his hand out to you as if to say, I'm here to help. Please help me. So overall, I've got a plus one on the dice. You have a minus one, so that rounds out to a flat, which still means you pass. Hey, let's go. You feel that wave of strange emotional force wash over you, but it doesn't take root in your psyche. You don't feel a compulsion to follow this individual's mental orders, and I'd like you to roll for initiative. All right, let's go. Okay, flat on the dice. But my initiative, I've got eight. Okay, so the initiative order is as such. Sergeant Langley going first, followed by you and the evil man on the same cell, followed by Max. Mm -hmm. So what Sergeant Langley is going to do is from his position slightly behind you, behind, from his position behind you, he is going to take a knee and he's going to take two ticks of aim. So you don't see it, but Sam drops to a knee in the snow and levels his pistol at the guy. And that drops him down to seven on the initiative counter. So now, Annie and the bad guy, both of you are up. I would like to know what is your speed? My speed? Okay. Uh, my speed is four. Okay, you go first. <laughs> Wonderful. I am going to approach, so I'm going to use a minor move. That is one initiative. So yes, I'm going to approach, and I'm going to approach with my right hand extended. I don't even care if this man learns what I am. I think you are already cognizant of the fact that this man is also not normal from the way that weird inrush of emotion and compelling thought entered your mind the moment he looked at you. Very true. So I will take minor move to move towards him, and I will take one tick of aim as I face my right palm towards him. Okay. So you walk towards him, palm up. You can see the figure glance between your extended hand and your face. 
you can see him double take at your palm and then he locks eyes with you again and i would like and i would like you to roll another discipline with cognition or stability with willpower check i'll take the discipline with cognition it's fine so that's a negative 1 however i'm going to use my reroll using my rank and discipline <laughs> much better I mean, it's, a, it's still a flat, which means I'm only at a three in total. But I will spend two mental strain to make that a five. Would you like to spend a strain to break the tie? I would love to, actually. What you feel the moment this man locks eyes with you is different from the feeling that you had before, just a few moments ago. Instead of this feeling of you need to help this man up, now you get a sense of facing a firing squad and a near infinite amount of a near infinite amount of phantasmal men, women, you don't know, with guns, all manner of weapons are pointed at you. You feel as if you're surrounded by the intent of violence if you don't immediately drop what you're doing and stop. But when you blink, the feeling vanishes. You're still in the barn. The man is still in front of you. You know Sergeant Langley is still behind you somewhere. And you are you in your shoes. And you are standing in front of this man with your arm and the gun built within it extended in front of you. So now it is you, Sergeant Samuel, and Max all going on the same cell. So do you want to go first or do you want the NPCs to go first? I will let the NPCs go first. Okay. Before I let Sergeant Langley take his turn, I would like to know if you want to use something like a free action, like say to talk, to command Max to do anything. Because if you are not going to command Max to do anything, he is going to stay put. No, I, I will command him. I'm going to command him not to attack this man because he's still armed and I'm not looking to get my dog hit by a baseball bat. But I am looking for him to take the longer route and to check on Officer Jensen. So the, I guess, health check command. All right. As a free action, you make a short, sharp whistle. And then you hear a set of paws bounding through snow behind you. And not a moment later, you see the very familiar form of Max appear in your peripheral vision. And you can see the German Shepherd trot up towards this figure and stop moving just a few feet away. You can see the dog has its hackles up and it's in attack mode, growling at this strange individual. Max is making no move to get closer to Officer Jensen because of this intimidating presence. Understood. Sergeant Samuel is going to stay put and make another tick of aim. And he yells from behind the van, Put down the bat, dude. You just want to talk. It's still your turn. Hmm. What do you do? I am going to go ahead and talk as well. Okay. Before you, before you make any monologues, I would like you to roll a presence check with your charisma. Okay. Not the worst. Uh, so in total, I'm sitting at a plus two, but I'm going to not know because it's not even enough. No, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to spend the one spiritual strain that I can to make that a plus three. I am nearly certain at this point that you are the one we have been looking for. Drop your weapon now, and we can still handle this according to the court of law. If you wish to proceed, I will proceed. So if you're keeping up with initiative, you are now on cell five. Okay. You hear from behind you Samuel yelling, You better listen to her, man. You try anything, it's not going to end up well for you. As he also attempts to do a presence check. When you hear Samuel yell these things, your attention is still utterly focused on the individual in front of you. And you can see that despite his words and yours, the figure makes no attempt to drop the baseball bat. And I would like you to roll... An empathy check with your charisma. Interesting. Okay. Wonderful. That's not happening right now. I'm at a negative two, and my charisma brings it up to a flat. You are tense. You are in the moment. Your cybernetic ocular enhancements are 
reading this individual's motion, trying to analyze their body language. But because you're zeroed in on this man, you don't know if he is listening to you or if he's just ignoring you. So now you are on step five. It is you, Max, and this strange man. I really want the strange man to go first. Okay, if you insist. You can see the man visibly glance between you, the rather angry-looking German shepherd to his right, and somewhere off in the distance, the barely visible form of Sergeant Langley hiding behind the van, his gun trained on, well, him. And you can see him almost visibly now considering his options. And it comes as no surprise to you when he drops the baseball bat, gets on his knees, and puts his hands behind his head. Without a word, the sound of the aluminum baseball bat hitting the concrete floor rings and echoes through the empty barn space, and combat is now over. <laughs> okay. From your proximity to both this strange man and Officer Jensen, you can see that Officer Jensen actually appears to be breathing, but he also appears to be either unconscious or semi-conscious. He's not moving. Mm -hmm. You hear the crunch of boots behind you as Sergeant Langley walks up to you. His gun is still trained on the individual, and he taps you on the shoulder to let you know that he's behind you. And he says to you, go on, cuff him. I'm watching him. If he tries anything, well, you know what'll happen. All right, she will slowly approach kind of at an angle. And then as soon as that like baseball bat is in range, she's going to kick that away first. All right, you do that. The aluminum baseball bat skitters across the concrete floor, making more noise and rolls away to where it can't be reached by this man. All right. Yeah, she'll go ahead and do that kind of like half kneel to cuff him. All right. You pull your handcuffs from your belt and grab this man's wrists and snap the cuffs into place. And as you finish tightening the cuff around his wrist, you feel him lean backwards ever so slightly, and, and you hear, almost imperceptibly, you're making a mistake. I'm not here for you. I'm here for him. As she's finishing up tightening the cuff, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Do you understand the rights I've just read to you? With these in mind, do you wish to speak to me? He says, I understand my rights. I'd like to speak to you, but not here. Take me back to your police station if you wish. I'll explain myself there. Just know that if you do this, it makes what comes next a lot more difficult for me. I won't be able to stop what happens next. We will have plenty of time to discuss this at the station. He makes no move to resist. All right, she'll kind of like hand him off to uh, Sergeant Langley. The moment you motion for Sergeant Langley to approach you, he holsters his gun and takes over from you. He helps the man to his feet and then marches him towards your car. As he's leaving, Sergeant Langley says, Make sure Jensen can walk. And she will do just that and go check on him. All right. I would like you to roll a first aid check with your cognition, please. All right. But I am sitting at a flat and with my cognition, that's only a three. So I think I am going to go ahead and spend the two strain that I can to check on him to bring that up to a five because I doubt man's is good. All right. As you turn around to check on Jensen... Your mind automatically shifts your cybernetic ocular augments into medical analysis mode. And so you give him a brief once-over with your eyes, and your optics tell you that he is indeed alive with a slightly with a lower heart rate and a small, slightly close to moderate amount of blood loss. Your optics pinpoint a series of blunt force contusions along his head and upper body. And your inbuilt database matches it with the baseball bat. Uh, and your internal database matches it with a model of baseball bat that is similar to the one that you saw the man holding. And 
the same one that you kicked away a few moments later. But he appears to be stable. His breathing is shallow but adequate. Your optics tell you that. What do? With that in mind, yes, with that in mind, she's going to, as carefully as she can, pick him up. Bridal style, because I think it's hilarious. Are you going to cut the zip ties around his ankles and wrists? I'll do that when I set him back down. (laughs) So you pick up Jensen, one arm underneath his legs, the other supporting his back. You can see that Max has shifted from attack mode to follow mode and is now once again dutifully by your side. As you walk back towards the car through the snow, you feel Jensen come to in your arms. He shifts a little bit, attempts to maybe perhaps stretch, and then realizes that he is bound. Don't move. I... Oh, oh, fuck. Annie, what the... How did... How did you find me? We will have time for that later. Yeah, I think... I think a couple of my ribs are broken. And to think, now we may need to instill anti-kidnapping training. Despite his wounded state, he chuckles and then coughs as you feel him twitch from what you presume pain. And he says, kind of yet to give me some fucking lip. You try having a baseball bat at the back of your head and we'll see how funny that shit is. See, Annie knows. That if she were to be hit in the head with a baseball bat, specifically an aluminum one, it would just go clang. And the baseball bat would bend comically around the shape of her head. <laughs> like it's a Looney Tunes cartoon. But yes, that's, that's the humor going on in her head that helps her cope. And it's just the tiniest little smirk. And she's going to kind of, to her best ability, lean back to where more of his weight is directly on her torso to use a free hand like the one under his legs to open the passenger side door. All right. Once you reach the car, you open up the passenger side door and rather gently place Jensen into the passenger seat, making sure to, at the very least, lower the seat back so he's a little bit more comfortable. You also use your brute strength to snap the plastic zip ties around his wrists and ankles so that, at the very least, you see him come free And for the most part, he appears to let his hands settle atop his midsection. You can see that his breathing is shallow, not ragged, and slow, as if he's taking great care to breathe in without causing himself too much undue pain. And he looks over to Sergeant Langley, then to you, and he says, Thanks for the save, Annie. You would do the same for me. He gives you a smile and a little thumbs up, and he says... (laughs) You know it. Now, I need a I need a doctor. Yes, you do. And then she'll look up to look at Sergeant Langley, who she's going to uh, motion to walk a little bit of ways with her. Sergeant Langley has just finished bundling the strange man into the backseat of the car. And he sees you make this gesture, walks around the police car, and moves forward ahead of you a few paces, motioning for you to follow him. Once you are presumably out of earshot of the car, he looks at you up and down and he says, well, that could have gone a lot worse than I thought. Well, at least we got at least we got Jensen back and whoever the hell this guy is. What's up? It could still go bad. Something he had said. Something's not right here. I need you to take Officer Jensen to the nearest doctor and to take this criminal to the station. Max and I will remain here and investigate. Um, well, okay, sure. Um, that means you'll probably be stuck here for, like, at least the next four to eight hours, Annie. Because I need to make sure this guy gets back to, you know, Beaver. So we can stick him in a holding cell there, but... He just stares, just blankly. He looks at you like his words are not making any sense, and then he realizes this is your method of responding to him. And all the ways that he can do or say, all the things that he can do or say sort of run through his mind. You can see his eyes flick between you and the car and then back to you. And he says, but I guess you don't really care. Okay, fine, fine. I'll drop Jensen off in Ballard. 
get him some immediate medical attention, and then I'll throw this guy in a holding cell back in Weaver. I'll give you a call once I'm coming back to pick you up. And then she'll kind of give him a, a pat on the arm. Excellent plan, Sergeant. He sighs, and he says, fine. Yeah, yeah, just, uh, uh, yeah. Take Max, do a sweep of this place, make sure no one else strange is hiding around here. I'll give you a call once I'm done. And he tips an imaginary hat to you as he walks back to your car, gets in, starts the engine, and drives off. Now you are left here alone. The silence is deafening. The only thing you can hear is the sound of Max panting as he stares up at you from your side, going, as he stares up at you from your side, he's just standing there looking at you. All right. So first order of business is probably doing another investigation of this barn. All right. You make your way back to the barn. It is as empty as you left it. The blood-stained baseball bat is still sitting near one of the barn walls where you kicked it. Where Jensen was laying on the ground now is just a small, rapidly freezing pool of, uh, pool of blood. Me and Max, we're going to figure out what's going on in this barn. And you can also see a very obvious trail of slushy footprints come from the entrance of the barn, leading towards where the pool of blood is. You don't need to roll anything. This is what your senses tell you. Mm -hmm. You lead Max around the barn, letting him sniff just about everything. And the places that he seems to come back to the most are where Jensen laid on the ground, along with the, tr along with the boot print trail that leads from the door, and also the baseball bat. You don't find anything here that is out of the ordinary for what you know about this place. Most of what you find is some spare filming equipment, things that can survive being out in the cold for a very long time without needing to be specifically stored in some in a dry box or in an equipment case. Stuff like green screens, sound baffles, floodlights, that sort of thing. Okay. And there are no tapes in these cameras, yes? There are no cameras out here. Oh, there's no cameras. Okay, got it. Just camera-like equipment. Yeah, just camera equipment, but no actual cameras. There's nothing here that would suggest that the individual that you arrested is or was filming this whole thing. Okay, okay. Well, time to check the house. All right. You take Max over to the house and you find the door is locked. Well, well, well. It just so happens that I'm rank three in security. I'm gonna break this freaking lock. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, roll that analog security check with dexterity. Wonderful. That leaves me with a five. You drop to a knee and pull a set of lockpicking tools from your belt. You work for a few moments. Out of the corner of her eye, you can see Max's head just ever so slightly edging into your peripheral vision. The clouds of smoke and water vapor that come from his nose and mouth as he's panting, just watching you work because he is a good boy. Yeah, she will probably take a break mid-lockpick just to give him a nice pat on the head. Max is a very good boy. Yes. You finish picking the lock and you open up the door of the house. This house is a very homely, stately-looking two-story affair. The outside decor makes you think of something out of the Wild West. It is that style of building. Hmm. The outside walls are painted white and a light pastel blue. And inside, you can see that some of these rooms have been converted to more modern usage. There appears to be electric heaters all throughout the place, along with, along with more modern-looking air conditioning units in some of the rooms. You can also see similar-looking equipment cases like the ones you saw in the barn, along with a fridge, other furniture. This place doesn't look like it's been used in a while, at least a couple of weeks. Okay. <laughs> I mean, she's looking for anything identifiable. Anything that would give away who the previous owners were or who the person they arrested might be. I would like you to roll a luck check for me, please. Luck. Oh, boy. All right. I've got a plus one on the dice. So what you find scattered around the house is mentions of filming contracts and paperwork. You remember that 
when you and Sergeant Langley were researching this place back in Beaver, that this place is owned by a real estate company called Adamantium Real Estate LLC. Your machine, the machine part of your brain distinctly recalls the, the stated purpose of the Sherman Ranch to be the provision of recreation facilities, entertainment services for the purposes of creation, development, production, and distribution of multimedia content. Essentially, you distill it down to this place is used for filming, either TV shows, movies, you're not quite sure, but looks like this house is used for storage of filming equipment, along with lodgings for crew or people that are here to do said filming. Okay, but nothing, like, personal. Nothing too personal. There aren't any contracts or important paperwork or documents that you can find here. Most of the stuff that is here looks to be newspapers, instruction manuals on how to operate certain kinds of equipment, scripts. Nothing positively identifiable for your suspect. Obviously, you... Obviously, with some of the scripts that you find, you do find lots of other names, but names that you don't recognize. Okay. And then that was all over the house. That's not just like the downstairs? Yeah, just all over the house. You find lots of assorted filming equipment. The bedrooms here are pretty well done. Although with the way the sheets are tugged over the bed and the pillows, you ex- you figure out, you figure that these beds have not been used in a while. Okay. Well, time to go check out the shed. The shed is in similar condition. It is a rather big tool shed that has been reinforced against winter weather. The door is locked, but you don't have to roll. You perform the same procedure, part two. Jimmy the lock on the shed and pop it open. Inside appears to be traveling equipment, stuff like there is a quad bike in here. Actually, there are two quad bikes under tarps in here, along with other, other things like canisters of engine oil, toolboxes, more tripods folded up and stacked against a corner of the shed, and other assorted filming equipment. Again, no cameras in here. Ah, if she weren't a detective, she'd take one of those quads. All right, so if there's nothing too interesting in the shed, probably just going to walk the perimeter of the ranch itself, as far as, like, the property fence. Just keeping an eye out for anything. Okay, you skirt the fence rather briefly. You don't find anything amiss with the fence. You don't find any footprints. You find several little tracks that might be from you find several little tracks that might be from rabbits, but nothing that it, but nothing that says human. If nothing else, I'm sure Max is enjoying this walk. All right, but honestly what I was looking for out here in the ranch was like cult stuff. Nothing screams cult as you finish your rounds of the ranch property. It all seems very formal, very well put together that this place is used specifically just for filming TV shows or movies or what have you. And all of the things that Orpheus and your research have told you about this place, all of the paranormal stuff, UFO sightings, all appears to just be a massive publicity-related thing for this particular property. Just walking in there with the backs. We're here for the cult stuff. Amazing. <laughs> All right. So if there's nothing too out of the ordinary, nothing culty, no other signs of crime, she's probably just going to wait uh, in the house with Max until uh, Sergeant Langley gets back. You spend some time in the house going over your notes, occasionally playing with Max, like running around the outside of the house, making sure he gets his walks in. And eventually, you get a phone call from Sergeant Samuel. When you pick up your phone, he says, All right, so I've dropped our guy off in Beaver. I've left Jensen in Ballard. He's at a hospital there seeking treatment. The folks at the accident and emergency say that once they've done some x-rays and stabilized his presumably fractured ribs the doctor told me that they might not be broken at all just fractured i mean you know jensen he's a tough sort so i am driving 
back up to Ballard. I'm going to make my way directly to the ranch. I'll pick you up in probably the next hour or hour and a half, depending on how thick the snow is. Understood. Thank you, Sergeant. Uh, no problem. Hope you've been staying warm. Did you uh, find anything else out there or be clear to pack up shop and go home? I think we are cleared for now, at least until our suspect says anything. Yeah, about that. Our guy hasn't said a word to me since I dropped him off in our police station, so I really do think he's just waiting for you. Uh, make sure to at least bag and tag the baseball bat, and uh, I'll get in touch with the people who own the ranch. Uh, let them know that there has been a crime on the premises, and I don't know if you saw the blood on the floor, but I think we we'll might we might have to hire a small cleanup crew to, well, clean the floor there. I mean, at least they didn't leave too much of a mess, right? No, but I will be honest with you, Sergeant. Given the nature of the scripts I have been reading, it may not be in their interest to have the blood cleaned. I mean, this place is being used for filming. They have fake blood that doesn't rot. That's Jensen's blood in that barn, Annie. It's going to de- It's going to rot. It's going to stink, despite the winter. Unless you're telling me you're okay with leaving Jensen's blood in a puddle there in the barn floor for someone to step in later. Annie is silent. Yeah, that's what I thought. Just make sure you grab that baseball bat and bring it back with us. We need to make sure it's in our evidence locker for later. Understood, Sergeant. See you in a bit. And he clicks off. Yep, won't want to say any more time. We'll go bag and tag the baseball bat. Yep, you do that. It's pretty easy. You just make sure you wrap up the end that is soaked in blood as well as the handle of it in Ziploc bags and tie them tight with zip ties. And then just stare ponderingly at the pool of blood. Do you stand there the whole time or are you going to go back to the house? No, no, she'll go back to the house, but she'll spend a good like 10 minutes just staring at the blood. After bagging and tagging the baseball bat, she will proceed back into the house and just wait with Max. Maybe indulge him with a belly rub. And indulge him you do, whiling away more time until you hear the crunch of tires through snow outside, followed by the sound of a car door opening and closing, boots walking up to the house, and then a knock on the door. Still gotta check the peephole of the door. Sergeant Langley is standing there, hands in his pockets, occasionally rubbing them together because it is cold. She will open the door. Yeah, ma'am. We got uh, neighbors called about a noise complaint a couple of miles down. I don't know what sort of party you were holding in here, but that's got to stop. You'll just stare. Nothing. Come on. This is the one time I get to make a police joke. And it's, okay, okay, fine. Let's, let's, go. let's go back to Beaver. I'm sure that whoever that is in our holding cell has got a lot of words to say to you. Or something. I don't know. Did he not have any identification on him? Nope, but before I left, I did take his fingerprints. I also scanned them, and I'm currently running them through the National Criminal Database as we speak. Time will tell if he shows up in our system or not, but for now, this guy's a John Doe, until we can get a name off of him. Understood. I'll do my best in my interrogation. Yeah, all right. Well, warm car, cold air. Let's get out of here. And she'll whistle for Max to follow. Oh, you whistle as if he isn't already standing by your side, staring up at you. <laughs> Fair enough. Just halfway through a whistle, looks down. Oh. Max is staring up at you. His mouth is open and his tongue is out. He's panting. Good boy. You follow Sergeant Samuel back to your car, bundle Max into the back seat, and several hours fly by in the blink of an eye. We next see Annie and Samuel as they are pulling into the parking lot of the Beaver Police Department. It is now quite late at night, and the sun went down during your drive, and it is pitch black, save for the streetlights outside. As you pull up into the parking lot, you grab Max out the back seat, and you retreat into the comfortable warmth of the Beaver Police Station. Once you're back into the familiar office, Having kicked off snow from your boots and your jacket, Sergeant Langley sits down in his chair. He just sprawls as he says, Well, that was, uh, that was, that was something, wasn't it? Like, fuck. Police have got Jensen. 
Do you need a coffee, sir? No, I don't need a coffee. What I need is a hot shower and a warm bed. Oh, then I can take it from here, Sergeant. As you always do, Annie. But uh, I think I'm just going to take five here for a moment. Driving between cities really takes a lot out of you, and today was a fucking long day. Agreed. He points towards where the holding cells are in the back room, and he says, Oh yeah, our John Doe's in one of our holding cells back there. He said he wanted to talk to you and only you, so I'm just gonna take a breather out here. You can do whatever the hell you want with him or something. I don't know. Very well. He gives you a very lazy two-finger salute to his forehead. And he just sort of lays back in his chair, clasps both his hands atop his midsection, closes his eyes. So she will not she will not return the salute, but on her way out the door, uh, while she's halfway through, she pokes her head back in. Sleep well, sir. And then shuts the door. You say that, you can already hear him snoring. Wonderful. You walk through the short hallway that connects your office space to the holding cells in the back of the police station. This place is small. It's not exactly a giant town, a giant city police station, two floors, all that sort of thing. It's a one-story building. You have exactly two holding cells in which to either process criminals or to hold the regular town drunks. They aren't exactly furnished very well. It's your typical concrete cot, single pillow. There's a sink and a toilet, nothing else. There is no heating here. At least there is, but it's not in the cells. It's outside in the hall. And your John Doe is sitting on one of the cots in the cell on your left. He has been unhandcuffed, and you can see that he has pulled the hood down on his jacket and opened up the thick windbreaker and the hooded jacket underneath himself to warm up from the secondhand heat that wafts in through the bars of his jail cell. And you can see that he has a shock of short, kind of neatly kept dark brown hair and a pair of dog tags hang from his neck. As he hears your approach, he looks up at you from where he's been sitting. His elbows are on his knees and his hands are st- and his hands are steepled in front of him. He looked to have been deep in thought before you approach, and he says, Good. Your superior out there not coming with you? No. He kind of cranes his head upwards a little bit to peer over your shoulder. Don't quite know what he's looking at. That happens just for a moment, and then he... And he shifts on his cot so that he is as close to the door as he possibly can, and he lowers his voice enough that only you can hear it. And he says... As the winter wind blows and the eagle flies high. For a moment, you don't recognize it, and then it hits you. That's an Orpheus call phrase. Son of a bitch. And she'll stop, blink, once, then twice. Come back in. It's cold outside. And you can see his rather tense posture deflate almost immediately as he leans his back on the wall and he says, You know, you really should hide the fact that you've got a gun in that arm a little a little more conspicuously. I believe it is my business who I hide the gun from. Just, whatever. You know, I'm assuming you got, you got a countryside posting. So either you're an agent that's fucked up immensely enough to get a backwood country posting, or they put you here because you're recovering from something? At least that's how I see it. That information is classified. Uh, Not classified enough, at least. And he makes a pointed gesture of giving you a once-over with his eyes. At least that's what your body's telling me. He will open the cell. He makes no move to rush you or anything. He's just sitting on the cot, staring at you. And she will walk in and just kind of like lean on the wall opposite of the cot. As you enter the cell and take a position on the wall opposite him, he runs a hand through his hair and then through his beard, and he says, So I'm assuming your friend out there, he jerks his head towards the hall. He's not one of us, is he? He is, actually. Oh, so you're the one that's recovering from something, and he got the backwoods posting. Got it. You're a pretty tight-knit operation going on here, I admit. When the Central Divination Bank sent me here, or at least let me loose, I didn't realize there would be agents here and I would be intruding on an operation of yours. Speaking of what's yours, the man that I was beating up in that barn, you really don't have an idea 
of who he is. Do you? Explain. He sighs and from within a pocket of his windbreaker, he pulls a small brown leather wallet and he tosses it over to you. All right, she'll open it up. Inside you find things that are typical of someone who doesn't spend a lot of time in any one place, a drifter. Lots of cash in various denominations of dollar bills, no credit cards, a lot of business cards for either truck stops, motels, or taxi services that take cash, no credit, and a single driver's license, which reveals his name to be Wallace Gibson. And he says, So, I'm assuming you're not far up the pecking order with our mutual employers, if you know what I mean. And you've probably not heard of people like me. See, I'm the person that our mutual friends send when there's a problem in our country that needs fixing that isn't important enough to warrant an entire cell of people. Are you insinuating that these murders took place as part of an orchestrated hit? Oh, those killings? No, that wasn't me. In fact, I'm also after that killer. Just not for the reasons that you are. See, with our mutual employers, I'm what is referred to as, simply put, a cleaner. When there are things that the CDB picks up, threats that need to be handled surreptitiously, but they aren't large enough in scale that require a greater response, our bosses send out people like me, drifters, Nameless, faceless people who are supremely forgettable. We have the tools and the means to travel all around this great country of ours, fixing problems, as it were, if you get my drift. And it just so happens that your serial killer is one of those problems, and I have been on his case for quite some time. Unfortunately, I haven't been the most careful when it came to scurrying around your little town, you might have caught me on a CCTV camera once or twice. But since we both work for the same people, I can assure you, I'm not here to be on the other side of the law. I'm here to... We're, we're both on the same side. It's just that from what I've seen of your little investigation, as brief a glance as I saw... You're on the right track, but you've been following the wrong person entirely. Explain your attack on Officer Jensen. You mean you haven't put it together already? He leans forward, elbows on his knees again, and says, If it hasn't crossed your mind yet, then I suggest you start looking deeper into the evidence you already have. And maybe ask the question, What has good old Officer Jensen been doing in his spare time? I'm assuming that if you weren't already suspicious of him, you wouldn't have found us, right? Truthfully, I was suspicious of you. And yet, how did you find out about, well, the ranch, where we were? By looking through Officer Jensen's belongings, including his computer. He spreads his hands to you as if to say, there it is. And he says, I suppose the answers are already there laid out in front of you, like on a plate. You're just not seeing it. And I would like to know if you can see it before, you know, before I give you the answers that you're seeking. Because, well, like I said, we're on the same side. I just want to know if you can understand why I'm on the other side of the coin. And this, unfortunately, is Annie's weak point. This was normally Sonia's better job. I would like you to make me a raw cognition check. So you just roll your 3DF and add it to your cognition score. Oh, that's good. All right, I'm out of five. Come on, brain. Think of things. <laughs> As you consider Wallace's words, you go back into your mind and briefly remember the scene of when you first discovered that he was kidnapped. You remember watching the CCTV tape seeing who you presume to be Wallace sneaking up behind him, clocking him on the back of the head with a baseball band and carrying him away. 
You remember that you went through Jensen's computer, and on that computer you found an email from an anonymous source saying that there was that something bad was going to happen in Sherman Ranch on a specific date and a specific time. And that email was strange, considering that it was that he had received it to his work email, like his police email. And it stands out to you as abnormal amidst a sea of rather normal work and other personal emails. As on a side note, you think about him using his work email for more personal things, and that's not allowed. But that single email of a strange anonymous sender tipping him off that something was about to happen somewhere, that's strange, don't you think? You've known Michael Jensen for a while now, about as long as you've been in the employ of the Beaver Town Police Department. He was a relatively new officer when you first joined. He'd spent about a year and a half already on the force after graduating from the academy, and you've worked with him for about eight months ever since you joined the Beaver Police Department, using your cover story as a transfer from another police department upstate. And you've gotten to know him. He's a pretty nice individual. Fairly easygoing. He does his job. He loves his job. But he's still rather naive and kind of innocent as to certain forms of crime. Because Beaver is such a small town, barely anything happens anyway. But when it does happen, it's rather big. And so far, a lot of the stuff that you've done has mostly been speeding tickets, traffic violations, the occasional bouts of theft, and picking up drunks from the town bar and sticking and throwing them into your jail cells to let them sleep it off. He doesn't strike you as a particularly suspicious individual until you consider the fact that he received that strange email and not only took it seriously, but he himself went out there or was taken there to that exact location, not on the specified date and time, but he was taken there regardless because of the information that was given to him. And that strikes you as a little bit odd. Wallace looks at you, he sees that you're processing all of the things that he's told you, and he says, Now look, Annie, was it? Annie Sullivan? He doesn't say anything, but the use of her name will catch her attention. The way I see it, you've got two choices. Either you choose to not believe me, which is fair, you know, even though we both work for you-know-who. We've never met each other. This is our first time meeting, and as a result, you don't necessarily have to trust what I say. And that's fine by me. It just makes my job a little bit harder. So you can lock me up in this cell. That's fine. The things that are slated to happen will happen eventually, no matter how long it takes for them to happen. Or you can choose to listen to my next words very carefully and believe them. And you are going to let me out of this jail cell and I will help you prevent something far worse from happening to this sleepy little town you call home. Explain exactly what this terrible thing is meant to be. He straightens up slightly and says, You've watched horror movies, haven't you? Or at least I assume you have. Some points before you became this. And he gestures vaguely at you and your machine arm in particular and says, Who I'm after is... What the young people these days would classify as a movie villain, specifically from the sort of cheesy, schlocky 1980s horror movies. You know, Friday the, uh, the 13th, Halloween, that sort of person. You know who I'm talking about, right? Get to the point. <sighs> it's Jensen. I understand that much of what you are trying to say. But what are you insinuating he will accomplish if you are kept locked up? People are going to die. Beaver is going to end up like all of those small little towns in those big budget horror movies. It's going to make the national news when a spate of unsolved killings rocks your sleepy little home. And I'm here to make sure that doesn't happen. Do you get what I'm saying? I understand. Allow me until morning to make my decision. He runs a hand through his scraggly beard, considering it, and then he says, Sure. Until morning. I don't foresee any problem with that, actually. I'm perfectly happy to let you have until morning to decide. But make no mistake, 
you will still have to decide. Because, like it or not, what's coming is coming. The only question is, how long will it take to get here? She will walk out of the cell with a very determined look on her face. All right. You close the door behind you and make sure you lock it. He doesn't say anything else as you leave. And you are now back in the office of the police department. Sergeant Langley is still in his office chair. It appears that he has fallen pretty deep asleep. I don't care. I'm going in his office. All right. You knock on the door, get no response because he's fast asleep. Open the door and he is fast asleep. Sergeant. Sergeant Langley. <laughs> what? Annie? Uh, uh, yeah, hi. Yeah, it's the it's, chin. I fell asleep, didn't I? Yes, you did. Uh, so, uh, and you can see him rubbing his face with the same air that a kid caught sleeping in class has as he sits up in his chair, gives himself a moment to compose himself, and then he asks, you managed to get anything out of him? Name? Age? Anything? I'll have my report to you within 24 hours. However, I came in here to ask a favor. The Annie Sullivan asking me for a favor. Damn. I better write this down. All right. Shoot. Hit me. I need you to call the Ballard Police Department and have a detail put into the hospital where Jensen is staying. At the mention of that, he gets into business mode and he says, uh, Why? Do you think that something's going to happen to Jensen? Something very well could. He must be protected, can't he? Yeah, but he's... He's a police officer himself, like... And he is injured and in a hospital. Yeah, but he's, he's not a criminal. He doesn't need police security, you know? That is the favor, sir. <sighs> he throws his hands in the air and he says, Fine, fine. But you're going to have to tell me, after I make this call, why you want him protected like this. Okay? I will do so when I return from the hospital, sir. From the ho- Wait, are you going up there now? No, sir. I'm seeing Dr. Nequin. Uh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Our, uh, the, uh, our hospital, right. Okay. Yeah, um, I'll make the call, and then I'm going to go home, have a good night's sleep, and then tomorrow morning you are going to tell me exactly why you wanted me to call in this favor, okay? Yes, sir. All right, good. You're dismissed. Go tend to whatever it is you do after hours, I don't know. And, uh, see you tomorrow. Have a good night, sir. Yeah, yeah, you too, Annie. And she's going to go down to the evidence room and grab that baseball bat. This has been Applied Materials, an Orpheus Protocol actual play podcast. A warm thanks to our players tonight. Jenna for playing Annie. Be sure to follow the show at Applied Mats on Twitter, and we will return in the next episode. Good night. As Annie struggles to come to terms with what she's learned, an emergency in Ballard beckons, and the detective comes face to face with fate. Next time on Small Town Blues Part 4. <laughs>